As we're going through this episode, I kept feeling like I should be more engaged than I was. Like, this is the kind of episode I eat up, right? You know, military conflict, ideological conflict, politics. Uh, there's some good character moments. But overall, I felt myself just kind of disengaged. I think I do actually have an answer for why that is. <clears throat> and it's the fact that I couldn't remember that guy's name last episode. God, it was so weird. I actually wrote down his name. Lee Nallis was his name. Now, I'm not just making a joke here. I do want to comment on one thing, and that's the fact that Lee Nallis uh, has no character growth. Anybody who's seen my Six Points of Story, Lorian Plug, knows that you know of, of the five primary points of story, I have separated characterization and character growth. Lee Nallis has a decent amount of characterization, but absolutely no character growth, and that's exactly my point. He never moves. He never changes. There's no character arc. It's just, he's here, he's a guy. And he's a decent guy. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. He obviously cares. He obviously wants to do good. He obviously wants to help, but he's just a guy at the end. Moving on. <clears throat> and in fact, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. This feels like something that could have been an excellent political thriller trilogy of episodes, and instead isn't. <laughs> I don't know how better to put that. But I want to build up to that point. So let's talk about Minister Jaro first. So, believe it or not, I was actually going to talk about Mr. Jaro last episode, but I'd kind of forgotten which episode in which we revealed that he was the leader of the circle. Uh, and then this episode comes on, and it's like, oh, right, right, I can finally talk about him now. Because he's so obviously a bad guy, it's actually kind of funny. They pretty much pull the same acting trick with him that they did with the woman whose name I forget right now, who plays Vedic Wynn. Hi, I'm a villain. And there's like these giant neon lights that follow the character around flashing villain, villain, villain as they're going around. Now that can work, and indeed I think it does work in several cases. But what I find interesting about it is Jaro is... Well, it's debatable if he is an idealist or a politician, or both, I suppose, is also possible. And as ever, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this, because I need to cough. Because it's possible he really does believe in his... You know, I can't believe it's not Nazi ideology of, you know, pro-Bajorans, Bajoran supremacy. Screw the other races. Screw everyone else. Right? Bajor for Bajorans, uh, which is something I've been talking about all the way back as of the second episode of this entire series. Or he could be purely just a politician. This is where the winds are going. I can. I mean, he's obviously gotten some support. Think about how many men and women he has managed to convince to join the circle, the kind of influence they have at this point. Think also about the fact that he has had no particular problem funding procuring all these weapons. That's the first little tidbit I want to bring up. I would have really liked to understand where this money was coming from, or resources, or whatever they're trading, 
in order to procure these weapons. They mention, I think, three separate times in this episode, and at least once in the previous episode, just the, the overwhelming amount of firepower that the Circle has access to, enough to challenge the actual Bajoran military. Where are they getting that money from? Now, I'm not saying that's untenable, but that should be part of the story, especially since it could be part of the story that they're basically getting these weapons on the cheap. That makes sense, after all, because, remember, the Cardassians are, effectively, the ones actually selling these weapons to them. So, the Cardassians would be selling them to them very much under cost, because they don't actually care about, you know, getting a good deal on those weapons. All they care about is making sure that those weapons are in the right hands. I mean, Hell's Gates, they're actually going to reclaim those weapons when they swoop back in anyways. Could give them away for free, except then people would be even more suspicious. But I, like I said, I feel like that could have been a plot point, and they just kind of didn't even address that. They just somehow have the ability to do this massive armament, never discussed, never explained, First Order Star Wars. Um, I'm sorry, I shouldn't do that. I apologize. Don't, don't, don't bring up the First Order. I'm just making a joke, okay? <clears throat> then, well, then we have a great character moment. There's this great character moment of, uh, well, Kira's in her room, and she, f she doesn't outright state it, but she all but outright states that this is a punishment, that she is being pushed off the station as, as, as penalty for what she tried to do with the Cardassians. Oh, obviously, and now we know why the Cardassians are willing to play at politics. Again, I'll talk about that in a second. And I love that little scene, because... First of all, Cisco, you know, is the one who ha basically has to play fair, uh, at least to the face of Minister Jaro, and Minister Jaro is the one trying to say, hey. In fact, Minister Jaro gives just a little bit too much away when he says, I thought you and Kira weren't getting along. Now, that might have been true back in Emissary, but as we've seen, the two actually have a pretty good dynamic going, as recently as in the hands of the prophets. So the fact that Jaro would say something like that is exceptionally questionable and kind of gives away uh, even more of his villainy than we already needed to be given away. He practically just ousted himself to Cisco, although, of course, that's not confirmation or proof, but nevertheless. You know what? I'm, I just want to talk about the Kira scene because it's actually a really great scene. It's my favorite scene of the whole episode. Kira's there. And then Odo shows up. And there's some really good character dynamic between Kira and Odo. I've mentioned before how the two obviously will basically be retroactively written to have always been friends ever since the days of the occupation. And that that hadn't been decided yet. But it's so obvious why they decided to go that route with both characters. Because the actors have some pretty damn nice chemistry and some good interplay in their dialogue. And this scene is like rule one, or not rule one, but like example one of that. It's actually the third time this happened in the show, I think. But, you know, it's a very well-done presentation. We get, you know, oh, this, and oh, why are you doing this? And, and there's this great bit where he's just ranting and raging, and he learns to her, and she says, I'll miss you too, Otto. And he's like, ah! <laughs> it's good stuff. Then Dax comes in. Then, uh, oh gosh, I don't even remember. It's like Dax comes in, and then Bashir comes in, and then Quark comes in, and then O'Brien comes in. It is an excellent scene. The dialogue is smart and clipped and is very well paced. The whole scene moves exactly as well as it should. It hits all the emotional notes it should. 
because it never it never really feels fully comedic in tone. It could have been very easy for this to basically turn into an Abbott and Costello scene, but it always stays grounded. And I think the best way to explain that is when Vedic Baral shows up because he's there too, and he says, and she, she, you know, these are. And there's this pause. These are my friends. Because that's actually the point of the scene, and it's something it succeeds at very well. And I wish we'd seen more of this in some other shows in Star Trek, because what this is showing is that over the last year, across season one, these people have actually become close. Not super tight, you know, besties or whatever, but they are friends. They do have that working dynamic and that caring about each other. Each one even demonstrates it in their own particular way. Odo is blunt and to the point. This is wrong. You should fight it. Dax doesn't even address it directly. Here's I just wanted to you know I just wanted to return this you know something completely unrelated to you leaving. By the way, do you want me to talk to Cisco for you? Bashir has no idea how to interact with other social circles, but obviously does care, does value her friendship or at least her her professional relationship with him, and therefore wants to do something. He just doesn't know what. Quark, well, of course, Quark wants to get in her pants. But interestingly enough, Quark is still also the people person. He comes by with a drink of her favorite synth ale and is trying to, you know, it, so an ear to talk to, a shoulder to cry on. Very Quark, even ignoring the perversion factor. That is very Quark as presented. O'Brien, I mean, what, what can I say about O'Brien? I've been praising the hell out of the guy, even over on TNG. <laughs> Because he's already had several appearances over there and will continue to, obviously. So, but O'Brien comes in, and it's great because everyone else just kind of comes on, and O'Brien is just like, uh, uh, maybe I should come back. And it's like, no, no, it's okay, Chief. Come on in, come on in. He is, of course, just very human, very affable, very natural, just as he always is. So I love that scene. It's good stuff. That being said, while the actor who plays Vedic Burial, at least by memory, it's been several years since I've watched this show all the way through, by memory I remember the actor getting better later on. I sure hope so, because he actually sucks in this episode. And I'm sorry to say that. He is incredibly wooden, to the point where, like, obviously I know better, but I'm watching this like, oh my god, Vedic Burial is secretly the leader of the circle, or something, because his presentation is so weird that my brain is just wrapping itself around itself trying to understand what is being conveyed by this actor. Like, he actually comes across as legitimately sinister at times, and frankly creepy at others. And I don't really think that was the intent, unless it literally was a, oh my god, he's the leader of the circle kind of a twist, or untwist, I should say, that they were going for. Which, again, considering the Minister Jaro thing, I, nah. <laughs> they could have gone that way? I don't know. Uh, so, there's a few decent little character scenes. Uh, Lee Nollis desperately wanting to be helpful. Failing miserably at it because he's not good at anything. <laughs> I understand that feeling. I'm not good at anything, and I I love to feel useful too. It's one of my favorite things is to help people, um, and in that way I also kind of relate to Kira, you know, to feel useful, to feel like I'm actually helping the situation. I can't even begin to imagine. Well, actually, that's a goddamn lie. I know exactly what it feels like to be in a circumstance where I feel completely useless to everyone around me. 
I have been in the hospital more than once, and I have been in a wheelchair more than once. I know exactly what that feels like. Thank you very much. Um, so I, my, my heart just ran out to Kira for those scenes as she's trying to express this, and she doesn't even know how to because it's such an alien thing to her. And meanwhile, Vedic Burial is just like, oh, just be useless for a bit. And it's like, why? No, that's terrible. God Almighty, no. Oh, excuse me, Prophets Almighty, no. And then, so she goes back, and she interacts with the orb, and... I like to hear your guys' opinions and thoughts on these episodes. In fact, I love it. I love going through. Every Monday and Tuesday, I get like a, a barrage of about 20 or 30 comments for each one of these episodes. And over time, a few more additional show up. But there's always that initial uh, barrage. And I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on what the hell was going on in that orb scene. Of course, it's not an orb. It looks more like a dumbbell, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> the orb of prophecy, right? Now... The the burial in her thing is kind of obvious, you know, not to spoil anything, but he was already creeping in that direction, so whatever. But usually, in almost every case, the prophet scenes are uh, what I like to think of as one step removed from literal. It's a very overt form of symbolism, which I actually like, because the whole point is the prophets either cannot which is my belief, or do not, because they choose not to, convey or communicate directly, just because of the nature of their alienness and nonlinear timeness. So instead, they present something, and you're supposed to look at that and say, aha, you know, and so it kind of tends to make sense. Here, we have Dax as a spiritual leader who merges into Vedic Wynn, who calls her a blasphemer. Oh, and she's standing before the assembly of ministers, specifically, of the three organizations. I'll get to that in a minute. I swear I'll get to that in a minute. Where they're always shouting at her, and then she's told to listen. Oh, and Minister Jaro says, I hear what they're saying. They're all calling for me. And he said, no, 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 no. Then, then uh, Baryal shows him and says, no, listen, they're calling for you. You know how to listen to them. And then they get quieter and quieter. And then she has no clothes on. And then he has no clothes on. And it's just, what? <laughs> I can't help but think that this is probably just either a little bit too literal or that the creators were teasing uh, a completely different story arc, which is my only theory on the matter, which I am not going to share with you. Wouldn't it have been cool in its own weird way if they had really broken with Star Trek standards and basically had multiple main casts in multiple locations at the same time. Anybody who is younger or watch, or simply has watched modern television might say, well, what's so big about that? That just wasn't done back in the day. If it was done, it was done temporarily or within the confines of a single episode. You know, the whole A-plot, B-plot thing I've talked so much about. But the idea of having some of your main cast to use the literal example of what I'm talking about, set on Bajor, to have Kira down there and whoever else, we'd, we'd have to think about this, we'd have Kira down there in communication, obviously, with the station, but not actually on the station, not part of the station plots, but then again, the people on the station wouldn't be part of the Bajor plots and have those two threads going simultaneously throughout the series as Kira takes up a mantle of leadership. I personally think that's a very cool idea, but I will admit that it's the, one of those creative ideas, the kind of things that wouldn't be very safe to do and might not succeed and might cause issues. And 
Lord knows DS9 had enough issues as is. But as ever, I'd love to hear your guys' theories of the orb scene, and I'd love to hear what you'd think about my incredibly terrible idea about splitting the cast up like that. Because you never split the party, right? <clears throat> Just ask my players about that. So, they're moving troops into the capital. One of my favorite things about that is as Odo is talking to the guy, he says, don't worry, the troops moving into the capital will definitely take care of the situation. We are dealing with a flat-out military coup situation. And credit to the episode, even though it is actually the primary plot, the coup itself and the actions surrounding it are on the down-low. It doesn't go out of its way to overemphasize those points, and it shouldn't, because this is a character drama set against the backdrop of the political drama. And, so the, and I think that actually, that aspect of the episode works. Um, I also love the fact that, once again, and this is not the first time, Cork and Odo are an excellent team together. What a shock, right? Uh, <clears throat> so then there's, there's Vedic Wynn, and I, I want to strangle her, as I always do, uh, to death, preferably, or maybe burning. I'm okay with burning. I... Uh, <clears throat> There's a bit where she's on the bridge, and there's, they hear gunshots in the distance, and they're like, oh my gosh. And then Wynn is there. And I almost feel like she's a deliberate distraction, like an in-universe distraction. Oh my gosh, excuse me. Because if you watch that scene, you'll notice it's like, hey, gunshots. Oh, hi, Vedic Wynn. <laughs> Which is funny, because as we learn later, she is not actually supporting the circle, or the military, or the provisional government. She's just kind of there. Waiting for someone to offer her the biggest piece of cheese. No, seriously, that is her perspective. She is, as ever, the amateur politician. It's actually funny, because Mr. Jaro is also an amateur politician. An amateur in general. But that still makes sense for the same reasons that it made sense that everyone else has basically been an amateur on Bajor. They're good at a couple of things. You know, they're really good at resisting. They're really good at guerrilla warfare. They're really good at enduring. But that's kind of it. And that makes so much sense. Right? I mean, does, isn't that logical? So Mr. Jaro is, is big and obvious and sweeping in his political manipulations, if you can even call them that, just like Wynn was two episodes ago. Oh yeah, by the way, that whole, have we met before? It, it's literally been two episodes. Give me a freaking break. Anyways. <clears throat> I mean, I, I know she recognized Kira. That's the point. She's just being her usual smarmy, type 3 villain, strangle-burning self. <clears throat> But Mr. Jaro, later on, he tries to convince Kira to give him intel, basically. What is the Federation's response going to be? What is Cisco's response going to be? He also clarifies that, and I do like that. He recognizes that Cisco is the point man, and that regardless of what the Federation's reaction will be, Cisco's reaction is the far more troublesome one to account for, and he is right on that account, as we will see in the next episode, as we see at the end of this episode. I'll talk more about Admiral Chakotay in a minute. Yes, really. But <clears throat> he tries to convince Kira to help him. <laughs> and he is so amateur and pathetic about it. He really is. He, is, he, he 
he's he's like someone who doesn't know what a carrot is. This is really stretching the analogy, so forgive me. You know, so he's trying to do the carrot and the stick, and so he's like, uh, okay, I've got to give her, uh, I've got to offer her a carrot to work for me. So he pulls out like uh, a, a half-boiled egg. <laughs> it says here, don't you want the carrot? Except he's even pronouncing it wrong. The carrot. Don't you want the carrot? This is what you want, right? This, why isn't this working? Look, you could have this. You could have. This is what you want, right? Why isn't she talking? He's so pathetic, it's actually kind of funny. And then, of course, he says, Oh, well, we know how to break people. We've learned from the Cardassians. And then I just, I literally had to pause the episode because I was laughing so hard. Now, that is, let me make this clear. Torture is not a good thing. In fact, torture is a really, really horrible thing. But remember what I just said about what the Bajorans are actually good at? What do you think Kira is actually good at? Give me a hint. People torturing her and her breaking under pressure is not something that's going to flip and happen, you moron. God, that wouldn't even happen to most Bajorans. Never mind someone who has been such an active member of the Resistance, basically since she was a child. Although I do have to wonder when she learned how to finger paint, like when that was part of her curriculum under Cardassian rule. But I, I digress, I digress. So then, and I actually have a note here that literally just says Jaro is out of his league. Yeah, no kidding. Uh... So then Cisco gives them their briefing, and for just a moment I'm like, oh my God, we're actually going to see something close to actually competent fire squad tactics. Because he basically says, we're getting it in there, here's the extra comm badge, when you see her, tap it, call for the extraction. So what happens? Within seconds of that statement, Bashir walks up, kind of stumbles around, tries to get Kira free, okay... Then gets the gets the thing and hold and it's it's not actually I'm I'm exaggerating slightly but it's like eight solid seconds that he could have just been sh tap and been out of there and they could have been in and out and it would have been actually I would have been impressed like I know some people are like well when we wouldn't have a big action sequence yes we would we would have had a very competent action sequence we would have seen Starfleet actually being really good at this for once and that would have been awesome especially since move in suppressing fire like suppressing fire is a real thing for real reasons so the rest of the team lays suppressing fire down bashir gets up smacks the thing on her bashir you know o'brien chief get us out of here that would have been great but no he's a moron whatever um so then we get to a, a actually a really good scene between mr jaro and vedic win where we see two incredibly amateur politicians playing against each other. And it's funny because this really is just the most obvious over duh stuff. It's in character. I'm with it. I like it. But, you know, she's like, I want your support. You need to join my order and support me for Kai. Because that's what she wants. He wants her to publicly bless the circle and to state that the circle has the prophet's support. Now, it's actually funny because part of the reason, you know, on, on, at first glance, this is an obvious duh thing. It's just a straight one-to-one -one trade. The reason I find this hysterical is because it isn't a one-to-one -one trade, if you know anything about politics. First and foremost, she has to give first. He, well, he doesn't need, but he very much wants her support in this matter to accomplish his coup. And then once his coup is accomplished, then he is willing to offer his support to her coup. Well, it's not a military coup, but, you know, whatever, her ascension, let's call it that, to Kai. Both of them want to get kicked upstairs. Both of them have ambitions. 
but this isn't actually a one-to-one trade, but they're both treating it as such. And it's also funny because both of them, and I'm not sure they even fully realize this, effectively require the other. They keep trying to maneuver around each other, and yet there's, there's nothing even really to bargain with here. He doesn't have the kind of spiritual support he needs if he doesn't get, you know, the blessing of the prophets. In fact, if, for example, Vedic Wynn said the prophets were against this, the circle would be chopped off at the knees. And if he, as this new supporter, does not actually join her order and put in his political backing for her ascension to Kai, she's just going to stay one of the hundreds of voices in the Vedic assembly, like she already has been. Both of them can't really get anywhere in their ambitions without the other. <laughs> so then they talk to Admiral Chakotay. Now, I'm saying it that way very specifically. It turns out it was actually supposed to be pronounced Chikotay. Uh, Chikotay, which is a little bit different. In fact, would you believe this is actually the same actor who showed up, uh, I think, twice? At least once that I know of over on TNG, and I have to double check. I recognize the guy. I need to. It's an episode that we obviously won't be getting to for like a couple of years because we're still back in season one over in TNG. But, you know, he, he will actually show up because this was happening alongside season seven of TNG at this point. Season two and season seven were concurrent. So, but I mentioned it because everyone in the episode kind of says the word pretty quickly, so it sounds like Chakote. You know, the guy over on Voyager. I often wonder uh, if these kind of things, if any of the writers look back at this and say, I wonder if we should connect those two points. Nah, let's just leave it alone. I mean, we know who Chakotay's father and grandfather are. They're from made-up Indian tribe. <laughs> the rubber people. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Moving on, moving on. So then we have Chakotay. Excuse me, Chicote, Who's an idiot. <sighs> now, I, I feel like I've just ranted about the Prime Directive because I've just talked about... Uh, the episode Symbiosis over on TNG. From my perspective, I think you guys will be seeing that uh, this week, actually. I guess you'll be seeing that yesterday from your perspective. Um, that was actually uh, today from my perspective that I was working on that episode. <sighs> so this is when I talk about why I feel this episode fell flat for me. So forgive me. If it, I've basically done you know, running through the episode and discussing it. Now we're going to talk about politics in a political drama. Because I mentioned how this is a character piece set against a political thriller, right? Well, the political side of the story is actually kind of pathetic. And that I think that's part of the problem. I'm not talking about the, the Jaro and the Wind stuff. That's fairly on point. I'm talking about the entire piece. Where is the funding coming for those supplies, for those weapons? Why is it that the Cardassians are able to basically step right back in, assuming the Federation steps out. What is it specifically? What treaties or what directives or what purpose is there in the Cardassians staying out with the Federation present? This is something that has, has actually not been addressed thus far. It's just been this universally accepted thing that the Federation presence is what's keeping the Cardassian presence out. I mean, don't you see how this could be an interesting d dynamic? Let me put this in a slightly different term. If the wormhole didn't exist, this dynamic would not exist. Because the Cardassians were pulled out for two major reasons. Internal, which is to say, the Bajorans were resisting so hard and so long that the occupation basically became untenable. It started costing more than it was receiving, in other words. And external, the political pressure that was being pushed upon them by the Federation for years and years 
and years, <laughs> this has been going on at least since the Cardassian Federation War, in order to try and stop this, this horrible enslavement and occupation of Bajor. These two pressures pushed Cardassia out. Now, there's obviously going to be some hardliners amongst the Cardassian Union, and especially the Cardassian military, who are going to say, hey, we want to go back. We were kicked out. That's our territory, you know. But for the most part, there is no real legitimate benefit for the Union to do that. Enter the wormhole. Now the Cardassian Union is literally willing to go to war over this matter. And yet, you'll notice they are not willing to go to war without basically being invited in, right? Except they obviously aren't willing to go to war over this. And so you can see how this can become an interesting dynamic. The Union has made it very clear it does not want to outright go to war with the Federation. Probably not the least of which being that at this point in time, that would probably mean a, a, a joint war against the Federation and the Klingons, which, let's be frank, the Union would get stomped by that alliance. So they don't actually want outright war. So we've got what is effectively kind of a Cold War balance, similar to what the Federations and the Romulans had for so long. So we're just kind of staring at each other. Now the Federation currently has a presence at the wormhole, which gives them full and free access to it. But it's not actually the Federation wormhole. In terms of political boundaries, that wormhole is Bajoran. But Bajor is not a part of the Federation. Bajor simply allows the Federation to be there. I'm sorry. Bajor allows the Federation to be there, pretty much definitively to make sure that there's a piece on the board keeping the spot filled so the Cardassians can't fill that same piece. Because if the, if the Federation is pushed out, the Cardassians will move in without a fight. The Cardassians could even move in and ignore Bajor. They could just move right on in, either set up a fleet or take over the station or even make a brand new station and effectively push Bajoran uh, ownership of the wormhole off. Just, nope. The Cardassian Union could even play at politics on this one. They could step right in and help resolve this civil war concept on, on whichever side they wish to join with or support, basically by blackmailing them and saying, all right, here's the deal. You get to keep your stupid, dirty little planet. We get that thing, right? You could see how there's this dynamic here, which is basically never actually discussed. And again, getting back to Admiral Chicote. He flat out says, you know, we don't interfere with internal matters of other... Bullcrap, you don't! The Federation has gone out of its way to play at politics for its entire existence. As I mentioned in the previous episode, that's actually what the Federation is best at. That is its specialty in the 4X of Star Trek. And no, I don't mean birth of the Federation. I hate that game. I, I mean, like, if you were to look at it from that perspective, that's what they're good at. That in science and medical. And being insane. But, you know, other than that... You don't tell me that in an internal affair of a spacefaring race that is having issues and struggles that the Federation is just going to hands off on this issue, right? Now, you could argue that this is a temporary thing. The Federation will immediately swoop back in. But no mention of that is ever made. The, ad <clears throat> the Admiral doesn't say, all right, we need you off the station for now. We're sending in the Melbourne or whatever. You know, we're sending in this ship. We're going to immediately start reopening uh, negotiations. I'm going to I'm going to get in contact with the the diplomatic corps. We're going to get some people out there right now. None of that is said. None of that is stated. 
Okay, and this is all the external side of this story. What about the internal side of the story? We see three distinct factions of power amongst the Bajorans. There's the Vedics, the Vedic Assembly. There's the Council of the Ministers. And then there's the military. Now, it's worth noting that all three of these organizations are mentioned and stated to be distinct from each other. All three have a say in government, but are basically three totally separate entities. And this leads to this anarchic situation we have. This leads to why the provisional government is provisional. This leads to why Bajor does not actually have a governmental body of true of any real sense. Because it's got three governmental bodies, each which is basically doing its own thing. Never mind the fact that the military is deciding who to support when and where based on whatever. And that's another thing. Where the hell does the military get its support from? Is, is it just consist of people who are guerrilla fighters? Because holy hell, that's a nightmare. Imagine a military that's entirely consistent of guerrilla fighters. Please, no real-life comments on this one. Jeez, <laughs> you know? Or how about another one for you? <clears throat> So we know that the Vedics are actually part of the government. I mean, that's, that was literally one of the written intents, to go back to the whole Catholic uh, Holy Synod thing, right? Um, the Holy See. So, or maybe it is the Synod. I'm actually not sure which, but whatever. <laughs> I'm not big on Catholic terms, forgive me. Um, so we've got the Vedics and their place in the government and the fact that none of them can agree on each other. So we've got one, basically, let's call it one house, Okay, one, one party, if you will. And that they have a say in the governments of the whole planet, but only one say, and none of them can agree on each other. Then you've got the council of ministers who have a say in the government, and none of them can agree with each other. And then you've got the military who ostensibly reports to the council of ministers, and yet on more than one occasion has basically just been doing their own thing. And that's becoming even more of a thing, given the current situation with the circle. I'm not even mentioning the circle, which doesn't really qualify as a separate party, since it's effectively simply a guerrilla commando raid team political activist union that is being pushed by one particular man and his particular desire to take over the government and start leading as an autocrat. We have an interesting interweaving balance between political powers, and yet nothing is ever said of their ideology. Except for Minister Jaros, I, sh I should clarify. Obviously his ideology is at least, his stated ideology is given there, and as I mentioned, we're not sure if he actually believes that or not. But what is the, for lack of a better term, political platform of the ministers? What are they interested in? What are they trying to push? We could assume and presume what their political platforms are based on previous episodes. You know, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of industry, um, trying to increase trade, right? We could presume what the military wants based a little bit on previous interactions, you know, a lot of more... Uh, Bajoran-controlled territory, a lot more Bajoran oversight on Bajoran affairs. And we could presume what the FedEx want, which is the prophets, the prophets, the prophets. But no mention is ever made of any of this. They're just factions, but they're only different factions because they're, they're said that they're different factions. You know what I mean? No depth is given to them. Not really. And that, I think, is the other major problem of the political thriller side of this, is we have this factionalized, internecine conflict. This is effectively one step away from a full civil war. The only reason it's not a full civil war 
well, there's two reasons. One is because it's not a war yet, but two is because there's not really, like, they don't actually have something to civil war against yet. You know? This is not North versus South. This is not the uh, the Nationalist versus the, I can't remember the other faction in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I can't think of it right now. Forgive me. You know, this is not, a, a, an organization exists, but now it's split in two. There was never an organization to begin with. But each, if you're going to do that kind of a story, you need to make some kind of investment. You need to make some kind of thing to make us care about one side or one faction or another, rather than just, well, there's Vedic Win, and uh, she's evil. Uh, and then there's Vedic Barile, and he's kind of creepy, but we're pretty sure he wants something to do with Kira, if you know what I mean. Uh, then there's Minister Jaro. He's just, he's a, he's a perp, really. Um, then there's uh, General Klim. We don't know anything about him. Uh, and that's kind of it. You know, there's no investment in the political side of what is effectively a very engaging political thriller. Uh, I guess that's all I really have to add to that. I, I just really wanted to emphasize that because I feel like this could have been great DS9. And instead, it remains merely average. We'll see how this trilogy concludes next time with Mass Effect 3... Sorry. With... <laughs> with The Siege, uh, which I will be seeing you guys next month, uh, next time. <laughs> Sorry.